Welcome to the Modern Masculinity Podcast, where we delve into the depths of what it means to be a man in today's world, and we explore the real-life challenges and triumphs that you and I face every single day. My name is Hector Santi Esteban, and I come with no answers, only questions for some of the most wise, insightful, and grounded men that I know. So get settled in. You're listening to Modern Masculinity. Fellas, welcome to another episode. I'm excited that you're here today. I'm excited that wherever this is reaching you, that it's here. And I know that it's for a greater purpose. And I'm excited that you are along this journey with me and that I feel blessed to be a part of your journey with you. And today's episode is here to offer another lens, another perspective, another idea of what modern masculinity means, because if there's anything that I've gained from these episodes, from these interviews, it's that there's no one type of interpretation. There is no one iteration of modern masculinity, but that it is an evolved and a dynamic and a iterative, whatever you want to call it. There used to be a black and white right? There used to be a right and a wrong. There used to be a this way or a that way and a my way or the highway kind of thing, especially when it came to what is a man? How does a man act? What does a man do? What are the roles and responsibilities of a man? And what we're finding through these conversations is that's all in flux. That's all in flow. And perhaps maybe it'll settle one way or the other. But right now, It's like when you shake up a thing of sand or something, right? When you muddy the sand in the water in the ocean, right? Things aren't clear. And that creates a lot of opportunity for change if we can see the beauty in that. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is how things have changed and what that change might look like, at least for one person. And hopefully that can give you an opportunity to reflect on what the ideal is for you and that there is no one way, but just helping you to find your way. And so enough of me, y'all. This is the conversation with Everett Shoup. Dr. E, Everett, welcome, and thank you for being on the Modern Masculinity Show. Thanks, Hector, for inviting me. I'm looking forward to where this conversation takes us today. It's always different. It's always needed. We've recorded about 15 or so so far, and every conversation has gone to a, a little bit different of a place, but it seems an equally needed and relevant, and I know today will be no different. So catch us up though. What's going on in your world? What are some challenges you're having as a, you have so many hats that you wear. I'm curious what's real and relevant for you right now. Sure. The first thing is personally, my youngest just went to college. So my wife and I are figuring out, not necessarily empty nest, but adult kids coming in and out of the house and our house is a train station, not as a destination. That's what's happening on the personal side. On the professional side, I just moved to a new position, vice president of leadership development at this organization that I'm working with. And from just helping people understand their own learning and development in the workplace, which encapsulates a lot. Yeah. It's cool the worlds that you're in. And I'm curious, I I would love to go into this idea of not necessarily empty nesting from your perspective, but I'm curious how you're approaching it from your kid's perspective. You have a son or daughter or 
I don't know if you mentioned that. I have two two sons and a daughter. My daughter's 18. Two sons are 21, 24, living in the house. They have jobs. They're fully employed right now. One's finishing up college. And then my daughter comes home for breaks and such. And so one of the conversations that's emerged is that in previous generations, when let's say a man was 18, he was shown the door. It was, there was an expectation of you kind of go out on your own way. And I think that the realities is that has changed. And what's interesting is the dynamic that creates for young men, right? It's all, there's almost this, I don't know, perhaps it's an uncertainty. It's a confusion. I'm not sure. Like I have my brother, he's 25. He still lives at home. And he has real no plans to change that, nor does my mom have any plans to change it either. They're both in a very okay, comfortable setting. But I'm just curious how you're approaching that with your sons and the approach that you're taking. Yeah, at first it was hard for me because I was looking at them doing the same kind of thing that I did once they were out of college or had a job, go and live in their own place. I actually was running away from my house. Not that it was a bad situation. I loved my mom and dad, but I wanted to be independent. And I just think the confluence of a lot of situations, the environment, the economy has just made it hard for a lot of young men and women to do that. And my wife and I have taken the stance that we are going to support our sons and our daughter however we need to support them. And as long as you set up ground rules, there's an unspoken rule in our house. You kind of let us know what you're doing and where you're going just so we don't wait up for you, just so that we know to leave the light on for you on the front porch. And not that we want to keep tabs on you, but if you're living in our house, we kind of want to know what's going on with you. If you're away for too long, we at least know what you're doing and where you're you know, where you are. So it seems to work really well. And they've been very respectful of those, of that, of those little demands that we have. This dynamic that has to happen that seems with, and I imagine with men, with women, it's all, there's all these rites of passages, if you will, or not even rites of passage, these experiences that allow us to grow into the next evolution of ourselves. And I find myself in this mode of not trying to coddle, not trying to protect too much, right? Like the playing the delicate balance of providing and protecting while also helping them get out of the nest as well in, in a variety of capacities. I'm just trying to get my son to go down the stairs without me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's an interesting concept, Hector. I was thinking about this on the, I have a, I telecommute. I live in Frederick, Maryland, and my job is in Richmond, Virginia, and it's about a two-hour commute. And this morning, I had to go further into Richmond. And I listened to another podcast that I was on about uh, vulnerability in men. And I was thinking, we're in a different society now than our fathers and their grandfathers and great-grandfathers. When you think about the agrarian society, most men had their sons working side by side with them. They were in the fields together working. They came home. They ate dinner together. They ate breakfast together before they went out. And there was this bond around work. Most men did whatever their father did. And if they didn't do what their father did, they went out and explored new opportunities. Then the industrial society happened and men 
went away from the house and women were kind of left to take care of the boys. And so there was this, instead of being with your dad 24-7 and working with him and eating with him and extracurricular activities, suddenly the dad's gone and mom is in charge and mom is raising the kids. And I feel like this recent society that we've become fathers in, there's been this collaborative effort. Like my wife made more than me when we started out and she actually, her salary is still higher than mine. It's really, we need both of us to be co-active participants in the raising of our kids where it's not just the dad, it's not just the mom. Now it's both of us. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out even further with younger generations and different notions of households. The whole, you need a mom, you need a dad, you need a, you know two parents. That is all changing. It literally is becoming a village to raise our kids nowadays. It's fascinating that you bring up the fact that men were with their sons a lot more in previous generations. And I'm experiencing this as I'm working from home more, so I'm available to be around more. And I did that intentionally because I knew we were having kids and the whole thing. But what's also interesting is that as I'm spending more time with the kids, as my wife, her career is taking off and she's working more, I'm doing a lot more parenting. But what's interesting is I had a really good friend who gave me this jab. He's like, oh, you're playing Mr. Mom. He said it as a jab, but I think we're looking at it the wrong way because a lot I know a lot of guys that are resentful of the extra time that they have to spend or the they're resentful of having to pick up some of these extra duties around the house or whatever because from what you're saying it's just I don't think it's put placed in the right perspective. Yeah, I would agree. I actually when my wife and I had kids, one of the first experiences we had was she was acting like acting as a mama bear and would not involve me in certain things. And I had a conversation with her. I'm like, you know what? I see why some men are not engaged in their childcare because if you want to do everything and make all the decisions and leave me out, then that doesn't leave me any choice but to not be involved. And I made it clear from the very beginning, I wanted to be as involved and raising our children as she was. I wanted it to be 50-50. I, I wanted to be there for them. I wanted to I, call me crazy. I wanted to change diapers. I, want, <laughs> I wanted to rock them to sleep. I, and quite honestly, I think the, my three kids just have better temperaments. They have better coping mechanisms because they did have a relationship with me and my wife, and we offered different perspectives for them and different ways of being. My wife is a scientist. She's very rational and likes facts and figures. I'm the, mo- I'm the emotional one. I'm the, the social one, the one who's going to be involved in activities. And so it gave them two role models who offered very different perspectives. And quite honestly, two role models who did not practice the traditional gender stereotype activities. If you want, if we want a car fixed in our house, my wife knows how to do that. I'm not getting myself dirty cleaning out the oil or whatever. On the flip side, I like a clean house and I'm going to clean the bathrooms and do the laundry and make it and cook the meals. So we've, I think we've just provided them with, with just non-traditional perspectives. And I think they're healthier and thriving in society because of that. 
Yeah. Yeah, I totally. And I think those examples are what is missing, at least for most people, right? Because it's terrible that my parents are the brunt of a lot of these examples. But I just think of my dad. My dad would get home from work and he would kick up his feet on the sofa and open a beer. And my mom would literally be sweeping under his feet, trying to clean the house. And so for me, I come into marriage and even unconsciously, I have these expectations or I have these predispositions about what something is supposed to look like. And I think that's so changing. And a a reason that we're doing this show is that the guidebooks haven't been rewritten. I knew I was not getting myself into the same situation that my mom and dad had when my wife and I took a trip before we actually got married. I think we may have still been in college, but we were seriously thinking about marriage. And we were having dinner or lunch or something. And my wife said, are you expecting me to take your last name? And when we get married, and I said, yeah, that's like the tradition, right? You're going to take my last name. And she's, I am going to take your last name, but let me tell you why I'm going to take your last name. And it's not for the reasons that that you think it is. It's really, um, for her, it was a practical reason. She didn't want to hyphenate. She wanted her kids to have my last name. And so, again, my rational data analyst type of wife was like, here's all the reasons that I am taking your last name. And none of them have to do with the traditional, I'm your wife, I'm yours or whatever. And I think that that set me up to think, okay, this is going to be a non-traditional relationship. I'm not going to be able to come home and have my dinner made for me. You know, if I'm going to eat, I need to make sure that I can, uh, can make our own dinner. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny. I'm just laughing because I relate so much in the sense that a big reason why I was drawn to this show or drawn to start the show was that my wife, and I don't think I don't think she'd get upset at me saying for it. She has a lot of masculine tendencies with work. She's really driven with work. She's a very, she's a very powerful person. And that's what I love about her. There's nothing wrong or bad about that. What I struggled with was how do I, and where do I still fit into and support that? At least initially, I saw a lot of and I'm still dealing with lots of the insecurities and stuff like that. But a lot, but at least initially was what if she makes money, what does that mean for me? And it was weird seeing these conversations play out in my head because intellectually I didn't really associate with those types of beliefs, at least what I thought. But I felt my subconscious, my programming kind of falling into these what would be just traditional tendencies that I didn't even realize were were there. And so it's just interesting that you bring this up. Yeah, I think if I were to give men advice and even women advice is those traditional archetypes or those traditional models and roles probably don't work for these days and ages. And I would encourage men and women to lean into their strengths. Uh, For example, um, I'm the social one of the household. Uh, When it came time 
for one of us to join the PTA. My wife is, I don't want to do that. You're more suited to join the PTA. You want to go have conversations with all those women and you want to talk with all those parents and you want to talk with the teachers. You go ahead and join the PTA. You become PTA president. I really don't want to have anything to do with it. Not that she didn't care about our children's education. I would bring her in when we needed to have an analytical, data-driven conversation with one of the teachers. But from a social perspective, she kind of let me handle that stuff. In our relationship, I'm the one who remembers everybody's names. We were on a hayride one time at one of our local farms, and this person was talking to us. And I recognized the person, but didn't necessarily remember their name. And I knew that they worked with my wife. And my wife, we were talking to them, and I, I was I kept signaling her, tried to ask her who was this without asking her who was this. Then finally. <laughs> We got off the hayride and my wife was like, who was that? I'm like, they work for you. I don't know who it was. She's I rely on you to remember those things. I'm like, yeah, but they're from your workplace. How am I supposed to remember their name? And we've just, we know what each other's strengths are and we lean into those. Like I, I it took me a while to get over the whole she makes more money than me. My wife is also two years older than me. We are both the oldest children in our family. So that means we have to get our way all the time. It's hard to get your way when somebody's two years older than you, argues from facts and data and analytics versus feeling, and makes more money than you. What am I supposed to do with that? I did have a conversation with her like a year or two into our marriage. And I was like, I was a much more confident person before I married you. And she's what? I'm like, yeah. I said, I've lost a lot of confidence in our relationship. And she's like, why? And I'm like, think about it. You make more money than me. You're two years older than me. You always have to win the argument because we argue, argue off of facts and data and not emotions and feelings and intuition. Think about how that makes me feel. Like every decision is decided by you because you want the facts and the figures. And I don't always have those facts and figures. And she's, I don't want you to feel like that. I'm like, you need to let me win at least some of the times. You need to let, you need to trust my intuition. You need to trust some of the, my gut feelings. And after we had that conversation, our conversations changed. She asked more questions like, why do you think that? Why is your gut telling you that? And I could explain more to her why I felt a certain way. And that gave her the data and analytics she needed to support at least meeting me halfway in an argument. It became even more prevalent with kids because kids, when you raise kids, it's not all data, facts, and figures. It's a lot of emotion, and I just know they're having this problem. And she trusted my instinct even more when the kids because I was able to relate to them on that social-emotional level. Yeah, I think this is so important because I don't know how it's emerging, but the archetypal man or what a man looks like or acts like or the Marlon Brando, right? Stella, you know, what <laughs> the it, that's shifting and it's changing. And I think that there's not enough men who feel confident in that shift, right? In in that difference. Like I, I'm taking so much confidence from your experience and your story and going through, yeah, there are places where she excels 
that I don't and vice versa and being okay with it not having to fit in these traditional boxes that our parents and our grandparents seem to care so much about perhaps. Mm -hmm. I think you're onto something there and it not only manifests itself in the home, it manifests itself in the workplace as well. I see a lot of young men who are not able to relate to some of the other men in the workplace because they may not have the similar experiences. It used to be everything was handled on the golf course. When you came in Monday morning, you talked about Saturday night or Sunday night football. Well, not all men are watching football on Sunday nights. Not all men are on the golf course and there are other interests. And, you know, that's something that I've had to not battle in the workplace, but really find other ways to connect with men in the workplace because I didn't watch that football game this weekend. So what else is there for us to talk about? Do you have kids? We could talk about the kids. And some men are uncomfortable with that because they don't know their kids as well as I know my kids. And so it's been, I think it, I think it, it you know, all of these phenomenon in the workplace, I think when young men find other men that don't necessarily meet that archetype, no matter how different they are, I think they're just happy to find somebody that's different like they are um, and not necessarily trying to meet up with a certain archetype. It also puts a lot of pressure on men. Like, why would you want to have to live up to some certain archetype that was manifested by Hollywood? That's not necessarily where I want to learn my values and live my life from. Well, yeah, that's another big theme that's emerged is that the, once again, it's going back to these models, but the models that have been perpetuated by Hollywood and by the media, you think about the Homer Simpsons or the Family Guys or the Tim Allens, right? They're just the Al Bundys, these stereotypical dads that they're not helpful, I don't think, to guys. They're not helpful examples of, I don't know, none of those guys are happy. None of them seem to be fulfilled. Or So I'm curious, I'd love for you to continue on what you think about what some of these media portrayals might be doing or the lack thereof. I think we may be turning a corner in that. I think we are offering new, not necessarily archetypes, but I think we are actually noticing differences. And a lot of, I don't know what you've been watching, but a lot of shows that I've been watching, and I can't put my finger on the pause of one right now, but they are offering different facets of masculinity, different ways that people can be a father. It's not just the Al right. Bundy's or the family guy. I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss for what, what I've seen. I haven't watched it too much, but I believe that modern family seems to do that pretty yes. well. The dad in that, mo in that show mm -hmm. is, he's a pretty good dad, right? Yeah. From what I've yeah. gathered. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen Shit's Creek on Netflix, but Johnny Rose, he's this wealthy Hollywood person that loses all his money. And he is the traditional breadwinner, but he's non-traditional in his approach. And he, you know, he they do portray 
different types of men, of different types of fathers on that show. I'm trying to think of others. Uh, That's a good point that we haven't given enough credence to in the fact that media, perhaps even in the last several years, right? Because if we were to go mm. back maybe 10 years, I don't know that we could say that. Maybe five years, things started to change. And in the last several years, there's just a lot more options out there. And those types of good ideas are bubbling up to the surface. You know what? I just thought even like the popular CSI or NCIS or FBI shows, I was catching the tail end of of FBI, the original, the one that where they're, I guess they're housed in New York. And the two there were two male characters at the end of the show. And I guess one, one of the main characters is dealing with some financial issues and trying to buy a condo and his, his male counterpart, they cut to the scene at the end where they were together and the guy says, hey, I'd like to consider that we're good friends and if you need any help, you would always count on me to be there for you. And the other one is, yeah, I consider us good friends as well and I would ask you for help if I needed it. And those shows have shown men struggling with emotion, with family versus work. These are the FBI series is high intensity work. It's not like you can just take a break and go on a vacation or whatever in the middle of solving a crime. And I think these shows have actually done a good job of showing that these men have personal lives as well they're, that they're grappling with. Yeah, it's a really good point. Uh, we just watched You People. I don't know if you've seen that one. Have you seen that? I haven't. I do want to see that, though. It's funny just by itself. It has another layer because, you know, Jonah Hill, he quits his job to start a podcast. And so I have some personal things about that. The reason I bring it up is that in that portrayal, the his fiance is very, what would a lot of would consider masculine. She's very full, moving and wants to earn. And there's a scene where... Jonah Hill offers to, quote unquote, hold her down right in between jobs, but essentially pay for finances or whatever it is. And there, that was a, that the fact that he would offer that she was offended by, right? And that was his point of contention in the show. I think it does highlight the nuances of relationships. And perhaps mm -hmm. those things were always there. They just got silenced. I don't know that it's a necessarily a changing of the times or it's a changing of the expectations or who knows. When you do speak about that, it, the nuances of the relationships are being portrayed. And I think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It at least gives men alternative roles or alternative types of men in the workplace that are men on screen that they can identify with and perhaps validate the emotions or feelings or situations that, that they're in. Yeah, absolutely. This has been a great start to the conversation. We try and leave some practical advice. So when we come back from break, I would love for you to share some thoughts on how a guy might approach this, right? What are maybe some stories or some ideas, some lessons, because it seems like you've been doing it. You've mm -hmm. been in this kind of relationship and succeeding at it. And I'm sure I know it's not been easy, but you're doing it and you've been doing it for decades. And so we're going to talk about some more practical ways to be in, I don't know if, I, hopefully you're not offended by a, what someone might not call a non-traditional relationship. That sounds weird even saying that, but <laughs> we're going to get into that right after this break.
Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Amplify Media and our mission is to bring out your genius. And so if you have a mission, a message, a purpose, something that you want to get out to the world but don't have the time or the tech skills to do that, we can help. Go to amplifymedia.com. You can find all the info in the show notes and let's see if we can help you. With that, let's get back to today's episode. Dr. E, let's take this one of two places. The first is that you can draw from a lot of experience. You're almost an empty-ish nester. I'm sure some nights, some part, some some nights it, it feels that way. But then you're also out there working in a rather large organization, helping people become better people too. So I'm curious if there's any overlap between what we've been talking about when it comes to being at home and what some might call a non-traditional archetypal relationship. That sounds weird. That's not what it is. <laughs> and also the leadership work that you're doing at work with goodwill and stuff like that. Is there any overlap there that you see? Yeah, so it's interesting with leadership and learning. I completed my dissertation in 2000, what was it, 2019? and graduated 2020. And one of the things that I would say, my dissertation was on vulnerability, how I studied CEOs. I studied how new CEOs experience vulnerability as they learn in the workplace. And one of the things, one of my findings was learning is different at that level. It's not about the mastery of a skill or mastery of a discipline like financial spreadsheets or learning how to use Excel. It really is all about learning how to manage relationships and how to be with different people and the story, the narrative that you tell yourself. And one of my the the findings that stemmed from that are rooted in vulnerability. So vulnerability, the definition that I like to use is Brene Brown's definition of vulnerability as risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. And what I found were leaders who were able to deal with uncertainty and risk were, or leaders who were able to tell a confident story about themselves, no matter what they have gone through, they were always the hero of their story. And leaders who were able to establish strong relationships with other people were best able to deal with uncertainty and risk, and therefore more able to expose their emotions. And so what I've found for me is that exposing of emotions is and really being confident in who you are is really helpful in whatever relationship you're in, whether you call it a non-traditional relationship or even a traditional relationship. It's really putting stuff out there. Two of my values are curiosity and courage. And I'm always, I will be the courageous one to start off a conversation. And I've seen this with men in the workplace. Sometimes you have to be the first one to show your cards 
And then if you show your cards, then, you know, other men will be like, oh, wow, you just revealed something personal about yourself. I guess you're a safe individual where I can do the same. And one of the things that we're grappling with in the workplace is how to maneuver the workplace through emotions when for so long we've been told emotions have no place in the workplace. And it's really given people the language and the space to be able to share their emotions without being emotional. There's a difference between saying, hey, I'm feeling sad right now, or I'm feeling upset. That's different than flying off the handle and yelling at somebody. And I think for men who have had to repress their emotions forever to meet these archetypical examples, I can imagine it's very hard for them to even admit that they're feeling a certain emotion. And advice that I shared on another podcast was taking it in bite-sized chunks. You don't have to dive in the deep end and become vulnerable and lay all your emotions on your heart, on your sleeves. It's and really- you probably shouldn't. Yeah, yeah, you probably <laughs> right shouldn't. Right away at, yes. at work or in your family. It's, yeah. What's interesting that you bring up, Everett, is that this awareness- of emotions, right? They're not even able to admit it. For me, I've been fortunate enough to have years of mindfulness practice and I've been doing breath work pretty consistently for a few months now. And so I'm like, I'm doing the work and only now after years of self-reflection and years of trying to figure out what's wrong with me, am I starting to unpack these emotions? When you talk about the language it's, I don't even know if they're tuning in yet to the right frequency sometimes, that, but waves are hitting them. They're not hearing it in the way that they can properly receive it. We talked about my kids, and I'm very fortunate to have two young men that have never been afraid to share their feelings. My father was not an I love you father. I, I love my father greatly, but he was, if I ever said I loved you to him, his response would be, what do you want? What do you need? And I think I did that one time with a, we had to, for one of our health classes, we had to tell both of our parents, I love you. And I was like so nervous because I didn't know how my father would react. And his reaction was, what do you need? What do you want? Why, why are you saying you love me? Well, that's something that I always told my two young sons. And it's funny, even at like high school, we were at a high school football game one time and my son is a senior in high school and we're sitting in the bleachers in front of all of his friends, in front of everybody. And he comes up and gives me a big hug and says, I love you. And I'm like, wow, we're in the middle of the bleachers and my 18-year-old son, which is usually the most awkward age to give your dad a hug, comes and says, I love you and gives me a big hug. I was, you talked about doing breath exercises and mindfulness. I was doing yoga in my, my bedroom the other day and my 21-year-old knocks on the door. He's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I started doing yoga. I went to a massage therapist and he said, my muscles are really tight and I should probably do some yoga. And he's, oh, I'll get down and do it with you. And <laughs> here are two grown-ass men on the floor doing yoga. And I did not expect him to actually get down and do yoga with me. And then after the yoga, he's like, hey, I'm going to go get McDonald's. You want some? <laughs> At least he's supportive. 
Um, yeah, he was supportive. He was like, okay, I'm going to do this with my dad and then ask him if he wants some McDonald's afterwards. So, you know, I think it is changing. I think young, the younger generation is a more expressive generation. Whether you're men or women, at least all three of my kids, they tell me what they want. I know some of the younger employees that I supervise and I manage, I'm amazed at sometimes some of the things they ask for. I'm like, wow, I would not have asked for that at 27 years old. I would have been too afraid to even approach my boss with, you know, hey, I, I deserve a raise or I think I should be getting more time off. I grew up in the age where your benefits were your benefits and your salary was your salary. I didn't even know you could ask for more. And I think every generation paves the way for the next generation. I'd like to say I'm a Gen Xer. The things that we did and the things that we fought for, younger generations are benefiting from from those policies and practices. And yay, that's awesome. I think it's great that the younger generations are able to ask for a raise because the generation before them helped pave that way for them. Yeah, it's great that you have guys like your sons that are exposed to this, that I think will be ahead of the curve in their own right as you were. And mm-hmm. I think that's fantastic. Is there anything else that you think would be helpful with regards to today's discussion? Is Are there any other lessons or stories or pitfalls or anything that you think might be helpful? I think it's just that. I think it's really to carve out your own idea of what masculinity means to you and not necessarily discount that's not what other men want. I can have a conversation with a pro football player just as well as I can have a conversation with a doctor or whatever. In fact, some of my best guy friends are complete opposites of me. They're more like my wife. They're more the data. They're more the quiet introvert. And I think when we look for friendships and when we look for relationships and engaging other people, it's those differences that help bring us together. I don't know about your group of guy friends, but I'm sure there's diversity and difference between some of you all. I don't seek out people who are exactly like me to hang out with. And so I think it's it's almost like any other group of people. We're not a homogenous group. Men are not a homogenous group. Biology is about the only thing that defines that piece of us. And I think leaning into whatever your version of masculinity is and accepting those values and the strengths that you bring to that position is really what's helpful. And telling a positive, strong story about that. I think sometimes the narrative that we tell ourselves is more important than what everybody else is telling us. And sometimes we are our worst enemy. And so I would just tell other men, if you have a, if you have a story or narrative about yourself, make it positive. Make yourself the hero of your story. Um, that's the only way you're going to lean into whatever your definition of masculinity is. Yeah. Everett, Dr. E, where can people get connected more with you or if they want to follow up and go deeper in your world? 
I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to connect with me. And probably the only way I got off of a lot of social media, just I was overwhelmed with it. I was going down rabbit holes on Facebook that I should not. And I figured, oh my gosh, I could have spent this two hours reading a book or hanging out with my son at McDonald's or doing yoga. Why would I sit here on Facebook? So I got rid of all that. And LinkedIn is where most people can find me. I love it. Yeah, I've... I go back and forth with these apps. Guys, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate that. If you guys enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcast. If there is another guy or gal or whoever is out there on their own masculinity journey and you think this would be helpful, please share this with them. And I'd encourage you to take one thing from today's conversation. Just find one thing and see if you can implement it, take action on it, and let us know how it goes. Thanks, as always, for being part of the tribe. We'll see you on the next one. Later, y'all.